More than 10 years ago, when education innovators from all corners of the field were first talking about digitizing what I'll call the breadcrumbs of skill acquisition, they were using the word digital badges. And sadly, I think the name alone stifled the conversation a bit because people inevitably thought of police badges or scout badges, static, two-dimensional pieces of flair that someone could wear to signify their role and presumably their earlier training when they pull up to the scene, whether that's a job or a campfire. But I think the comparison is too limiting. You couldn't open the scout badge, for example, and see what troop issued the badge, what the user did in order to earn it, verification that the person wearing it is the one it was issued to, and maybe even a photo depicting the challenge being achieved by that person. Evidence. Texture that in a digital world is quite possible if we can get the institutions that serve learners at all levels, professional and pre-professional, to get coordinated around some common goals and standards of practice. You know those heavy, round, iron utility holes at the street level that you'll see along a route when you travel in a car? They're secure, so not anyone can jump down, but lead to the infrastructure that helped you get successfully from whence you came, and likely help do the same for where you're headed. That might be a better analogy, but all these years after I've worked on my first credentialing system, I'm still trying to get good at describing the potential for these systems. Episode 28, 31, and 41 are all relevant stops earlier in this show if you're interested in more context in the area of digital credentials. Today's conversation is with Jonathan Finkelstein, CEO and founder of Credly, a company that if you have ever had interest in digital credentialing, you've undoubtedly come across. A nondescript midtown New York City office building is where I first met Jonathan more than a decade ago. Only a few people occupied the office where an earlier iteration of Credly team were incubating ideas and technologies on earlier platforms. We talk a bit in this conversation about what Jonathan has learned after all these years of pushing what sometimes feels to me like a Sisyphean rock up the hill of education infrastructure. But Credly and a few others are doing it. They're making progress that I still think will change the landscape of learning forever, even if it's taking longer than anyone had originally hoped, myself included. I'm Jonathan Finkelstein. I'm the founder and CEO of Credly. Jonathan Finkelstein is founder and CEO of Credly, a leading digital credential service provider, which enables organizations to recognize, reward, and market skills, competencies, and certifications. Previously, as founder of Learning Times, Jonathan helped mission-driven organizations produce and launch innovative online programs, products, and platforms that impacted the lives of millions of learners. Previously, Jonathan was a co-founder and led product strategy at Horizon Live, acquired by Blackboard. He's the author of Learning in Real Time, published by Wiley, co-author of a report for the U.S. Department of Education on the potential for digital badges, and a frequent speaker on digital credentials and the future of learning and workforce development. He's the son of New York City public school teachers. Jonathan graduated with honors from Harvard University. If you're a K-12 educator or education researcher, most of Credly's success has been laid on a foundation at the professional learning and hiring and higher education level. So it's where we spend most of our time but I think that in Credly's story and the momentum that slowly builds behind professional and post-secondary learning data is the root system that eventually will reach down into the earlier years. 
Let me know you enjoyed the episode with a shout on LinkedIn or Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Enjoy the show. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I feel lucky that um, I know you. We have some history together. Um, Credly has just gone through this big successful, you know, from, from a certain perspective, a transition that is a, an important milestone um, as a business, which hopefully we can talk a little bit about. But I feel like, um, I feel really lucky to know you, I think, well enough, although there could be just a raging capitalist underneath all of what I know of you, um, to know that when you started out with Credly, Sure, you are. Uh, you were very much like had startup spirit in lots of ways, and like enterprising for certain in in that context. But I also know that you're the child of educators, and I know um, if I know you, like I think I do. Um, there was another part of you that had a feeling that you know it, if this becomes successful, if I have success in this endeavor, there's, it will look like the following. And I'm curious whether it were, whether it was the challenges you were hearing your folks talk about as educators or um, things that you had experienced in your time as somebody who's always been supporting through ed tech, the sort of movement of education, education reform, professional learning. Um, what were the things on your mind when you said, all right, I'm all in on Credly. And if we find success, here's what it looks like. What was your answer back then? Oh, wow. That's a great question, Mark. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the uh, definition of success probably has not changed very much since uh, Credly was a a twinkle in 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 our eyes. Um, I think at the end of the day, we were really trying to find a way to make sure that people and their talents um, are present, uh, both digitally and 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 you know, figuratively and and literally when when human capital decisions get made that there's a lot of skilled people in the world and those skills are not always recorded or assessed in the same and, and, and in traditional ways. And as a result, um, those people are being uh, often overlooked when it comes time to thinking about talent decisions. And so success, I think looks a lot about like, how do you impact people every day at scale um, to make sure people are connecting to what's the right next opportunity, whether it's a professional opportunity or whether it is um, um, a learning opportunity that leads to a a professional or a good a good life outcome. Um, you referenced my my parents and and uh, being uh, New York City public school teachers, and um, and you know I I I think a lot about them. They uh, all the time. My uh, my dad uh, was a classroom instructor, taught mostly fifth and sixth grade for much of his career, and and uh, uh, was particularly loved teaching math. Uh, and then he became a phys ed teacher, 
for the last stretch of his 30 some odd years teaching 33 years. Um, and my mom uh, taught early childhood, usually kindergarten, sometimes first grade, second grade. Um, and I think with my mom in particular, the, I, I think I was always pretty amazed at how both personalized her style was to instruction that every child was unique. I could see that in the way she brought school projects home to mm. review or shellac um, and send back. Uh, <laughs> my dad helped with that too. I could see it in how she designed um, curriculum on the weekends and the evenings and how she was preparing different approaches to the same activities so that learners could have different ways of entering uh, the space, so to speak. And um, I could see it in how my dad, even when he was teaching phys ed, was thinking about the transferability of skills from one setting to the other. Mm -hmm. My my dad, well, while he taught phys ed for that that last ten or twelve years, um, he was not what you would think of as you know like a, an athlete, uh, a stereotypical athlete. I mean, he 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 did some athletic things himself, but for him, he was teaching life skills through physical education. Mm -hmm. He had a phrase, you know, if you had fun, you won. It wasn't about winning; it was about enjoying the journey. Um, and I I think um, there are probably many people out in the world today who went through my parents' classrooms who remember their experience with my parents and probably remember less the curriculum and the lessons and more what it means to have had somebody who was teaching them about life uh, and what's important. Those things matter. And I certainly have brought those into the work that we do at Credly. I love your dad's transition to phys ed after years of math. You do see the spirit of what he was doing at places. And I don't know why, but off the top of my head, I think about um, that playground at New York Hall of Science, which I'm sure um, maybe you've been to over time, but you should you should go and explore, and you may you may find some of uh, the spirit of of your dad there. Um, it's a great playground. Uh, New York Hall of Science is in Queens, and um, it's just it's a great playground for um, uh, toddler to I would say um, even ten or eleven year olds, where um, Everything you're doing has a math lesson to it. Um, there are levers and there's a fulcrum to all of the, you know, gravity toys. And uh, it's just, it's a really neat, neat space to put those two things together. So, so for whatever reason, you're telling me about your dad is kind of bringing me to that playground and and um i don't know something makes sense about about that that description just based on what i know of you and and also how um how long you've played in this space um because credly was not the first endeavor for you in ed tech you had been doing the work and um people can read your bio which i will link to in the show notes so rather than giving me your bio which is super interesting Let's just talk about this moment in time for Credly, because anybody who has been following uh, credentialing, micro-credentials, badging, uh, what are the – there's there are all these um, words that we have um, intentionally or accidentally cultivated over the last 15 or so years around uh, this space. But anybody who's following that space – knows of Credly because you were sort of early in and and were a key part of the infrastructure for anybody who was experimenting early on. Um, what I want to ask you is just to describe this this moment and this milestone for Credly. I don't want to um, 
I don't want to mischaracterize where you feel like the company is from a business perspective. So um, give me the sort of business state of the union. Like, where is Credly at this moment in its yeah. growth? Uh Absolutely. So, I, I, growth is the right word. We're in a, a growth a growth stage. Um, uh, we uh, started the company in in uh, late 2012 after a couple of years of R and D and real world experience. That uh, that I think is when I first met you, Mark, uh, when we were doing a lot of work in New York City mm-hmm. and thinking about alternative pathways for. Um, uh, over age undercredited uh, young people in the city and how they could find uh, ways to connect the skills they did have to the right next step. Um, but uh, when you fast forward in that journey uh, over 10 years ago or just about 10 years ago now, um, what we have seen is a, 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 a very real acknowledgement that people's skills and achievements should be recorded in a consistent way that they shouldn't be locked up and left behind when you move from one setting to another, whether it's a learning setting to another learning setting or from learning to work or or back again. The data and the evidence of those skills should belong to you so that you can give permission to others as you wish uh, to offer an outstretched hand for whatever the next step is on the basis of those skills. Um, and it should the skills and competency should be recorded in a consistent way so that when it comes to talent, people can speak a common language uh, and not rely on shortcuts like where or whether you went to college or what your race or gender or age is uh, or where you last worked, because all of these things are really shortcuts when people really just want to know what can you do uh, and can I trust uh, that you're going to be able to do it. Um, So where we're at today is we have seen that coalescence around that idea that there should be a common way of representing skills and it should belong to the individual. And um, and we've now seen as a result of having aggregated a lot of the groups that are now doing this, digitally recognizing achievements, issuing digital credentials. So you said there's a lot of vocabulary around there, mm-hmm. but let's just, let's just um, think of it as a shorthand as what might have been a paper certificate is now digital data rich and in the hands of the of the individual who earned it and verified um we're, we're seeing a tremendous interest in being able to tap into that network to indeed help organizations make faster better fairer human capital decisions so if you have let's say as credly does um 95 of the leading it credentials and certifications on your platform one could understand why that would be a great place to go to look if you were looking to fill roles in IT and cybersecurity, or if you had many of the product certifications that are used in pick a field, construction, manufacturing, Mm -hmm. design, uh, accounting, finance, insurance, um, who are the people who have the latest skills, who can you assume uh, based on data have the right mindsets for open jobs? why why enterprises and businesses are really interested in leveraging what Credly has has built to to create talent mobility for their current employees as well as finding new ones. So um, so uh, last fall uh, after our on a regular basis, Credly has always done some strategic planning. We re- revisit our values and our and make sure that our vision and 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 mission are. Uh, are are well articulated and that we're operating against them. We put together a growth plan for the next couple of years, and we were out raising uh, capital uh, to 
accelerate that plan and that growth. Um, and as part of that process, we found that there were um, several groups that not only wanted to invest, but also um, had the notion that Credly could make its home within their uh, within their business. And uh, Pearson uh, emerged as exactly the right partner for this next stage of growth. So we back to full circle. We're in growth stage. We have a new home where we are, uh, um, from which we are building out that growth, and we're part of a, a, a an even larger ecosystem with a lot of resources and very strong mission alignment to bring to bear. Hmm. I was talking last night with a friend of mine who happens to to be a developer, uh, a developer, technical developer, an engineer, um, and we were talking about how. It's hard to know when a product or a deliverable needs to exist in some sort of broken off smaller ecosystem to leverage the kinds of things that a smaller broken off ecosystem sort of propel and when it makes sense to then have it be part of a bigger infrastructure and bigger processes and it's inter- it was interesting to me to hear the news about Pearson because there are Pearson products that Credly had acquired previously. Um, and so it it dawned on me that you must be learning so much about when it makes sense to be in one environment versus another. And if you really want to see the success of a business that you have nurtured from such a from nothing, um you know, you don't want to see it gobbled up and not succeed in its mission, right? So clearly there are there are reasons that are impact-driven that this makes sense at this time. And I wondered if you could just talk about what you're learning about, like, how it made sense to make an acquisition that was Pearson, Pearson product at one time, and now it makes sense to join Pearson at this other time. Yeah. So um, back in 2018, um, as as you mentioned, uh, Credly acquired a business from that Pearson had cultivated that was essentially our our primary competitor out in the world. Um, always had a lot of respect for them, and I actually always um, liked the fact that it was Pearson that was out there competing with us because I thought it lent a lot of credibility to an entirely new concept and market. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you have this large public company that's also in your space, um, it's uh, it's good validation that it's a problem worth solving. And uh, that was actually one of the checks in the con column when we acquired uh, the Acclaim business from Pearson back in 2018 would would uh, somehow people think that this was no longer a good a good business concept? Uh, if, but um, but it's important for people to realize that actually Pearson never really exited the space. Um, they became an investor in Credly at the time of that acquisition. They had made the same determination mm-hmm. we had, which is that this is a huge idea, um, and that it's important to have both a a freestanding organization that can pursue it, that can be a neutral uh, Switzerland-like party, uh, and that can access venture capital and and other types of uh, growth resources uh, and uh, and found felt that the, the the bet was this could grow faster at this time in in the evolution of this this concept outside of the company 
Um, and what we wound up with was a, amazing additions to our team who are still with us today, uh, a great product, which became the foundation of the network that we've built, um, and a partner in Pearson that, uh, you know, uh, that was a, a very thoughtful, strong operating uh, uh, partner that was, you know, part of our board presence and, and a great commercial partner at the same time. So when we entered our growth uh, stage, uh, you know, in, in investment process last fall and found that we had multiple suitors, not just to invest, but to buy the company, um, it was actually, it kind of felt like old home week, right? Having having our friends and colleagues from Pearson um, say, you know, we've not let up believing in in the potential here. You know, fast forward to having completed that and emerging on the other side, um, Pearson is is very committed to us continuing our agnosticism, our ability to be uh, that trusted third party that helps um, uh, organizations share what people have learned uh, that does not itself um, own the content, doesn't own the the um, the assessment instruments that are being used. Yes, we have partnerships within Pearson, but we maintain and continue to grow and extend partnerships um, outside of uh, Pearson that um, uh, that represent all the different ways that people's skills can be verified, mm -hmm. observed. Uh, so we that's uh, Pearson is deeply committed to that presence uh, and to and to just putting fuel behind the growth that we were already experiencing. And I certainly didn't know. Um, parts of that history in terms of how they uh, remained a sort of smart partner to the business as, um, you know, Credly made the acquisition and continued to grow that they had continued as a partner. So in some ways, this is a uh, uh, coming home in a way that that makes sense, which um, I don't know, is really is really neat to think about at the highest level. There's been a lot of experimentation, and certainly in the last decade, around digital credentials, and we've learned some things about where it's where it fits, and learned other things. Probably, we've learned more about where it doesn't fit, or doesn't fit yet, is maybe the more appropriate way to think about it. Um, I, I just wanted to refresh my own perspective because i've heard you answer the question before of what you think the most significant change that digital credentials can offer is i wonder if it's changed in 10 years like do you feel like at this moment in time what we're realizing in terms of where you know we just went through a pandemic a lot has changed about post secondary education a lot of paradigms and minds are sort of shifting about what's important. And would you say that your answer to the question of like, what's the most significant social impact that a digital credential can make has changed in 10 years? Or do you feel like it's still the same? If, if so, what is it? You know, I, I, I think uh, maybe I'll, I'll share it in, uh, I'll respond in this way. I, I think that Ultimately, I think all skills matter and all skills are contextual. A skill can be deployed and used in all different kinds of settings, and sometimes they're more or less important. And in the same way that writing your resume periodically in the face of the kinds of opportunities you're seeking forces you to re retell your own story and think about the skills that you've picked up in new ways, um, I think what makes that effective 
is your ability to have at your fingertips the evidence uh, and the language that describes what you've picked up along the way. Um, so uh, this is a very human solution to an age-old problem, uh, which is uh, it, when it comes to the individual, how how do you not have to reprove yourself every time you walk into a new setting? How can all of the people who've observed you in action um, go on the record in a meaningful way that allows you to pick up where you left off or go to the next level or achieve your full potential? Because we have a lot of replication, right? Whether it's transferring from one college to another and having to retake courses, uh, whether it is going from one job and into a new career, but having to start at the the bottom, so to speak, mm-hmm. even though you have all the skills, even though you're in a new industry, you've got the right skills, but there's a rite of passage. And then there's just simply not even getting called for the interview because people are looking in the wrong place. Uh, reminds me of that line from Indiana Jones, right? You're digging in the wrong place. Um, uh, but but I, I think, you know, it's about surfacing uh, people to those who would not have thought to look for them. Uh, so I think, um, you know, on one hand, I, I, I always took a very broad view from the start that skills are nested, embedded into life and work and learning experiences all over the place. And any approach we took to a technology solution should be able to surface from all of those kinds of contexts, whether it's starting early on in K to 12 through after school programs or museum activities, which is one place we started uh, all the way up through workplace learning at a fortune 50 company uh, for skills that didn't even exist two years ago uh, and and everything in between. The, I think w- where I have come to appreciate it's important to think about the sequence of, of things uh, because I still hold that same view and we still have and support efforts across that whole continuum mm-hmm. is that the, the major problem is uh, is is in getting the listener to pay attention to these these new signals. It's not in doing the recording and getting them captured, even though it's been hard work and it's it's taken us over ten years to to build the momentum and build that network. And it's it's super exciting to see. But now we're doing the same work on the other side, which is how do you help organizations? How do you train them, at, or if not train them, show them that uh, that there's new ways to source talent to think about who has what skills. Um, and for that, you want to make sure you're providing the sharpest signal, the, the highest quality representation of what it is people have so that the decisions they make are, are can be trusted and so that the solution you have is scalable. And so what that has meant is, in a lot of ways, we've started with the groups that have, you know, over the over recent years, we've, we've, we've worked with groups that have uh, either um, ha- have certifications that are in the market that are already trusted mm-hmm. and have tried to more easily bring in mass all of the individuals who have those skills in, in, into new settings. Um, and we've just been very cautious not to introduce more noise into the ecosystem, even though I do think that all skills are important and wherever they come from are important. We want to make sure we're doing that in a way which doesn't disadvantage the people or the organizations that join the movement uh, because people you know, don't know what to make of them. Mm. And so that means you know, greater investments in helping people, organizations that are newer to to issuing credentials have, you know, AI driven approaches to authoring those credentials, suggesting the kinds of skills and competencies that you should use to describe the outcomes. I think it's had a big impact on helping uh, groups that are newer to thinking about outcomes based learning, working backwards. They're Mm -hmm. describing the 
what they want someone in the world to be able to do after having gone through their learning or training experience or assessment experience. And that has really, I think, uh, been a big, a big shift, not just, I think, for us, but for the groups that we work with is, oh, I, I used to get asked in the early days when people were trying to understand what we did and what badges were and what digital credentials were, they're like, oh, wait, so you're just like the, like the thing they get at the end. And we're like, yeah, we're just the most important part of the process, like the thing <laughs> you actually have to show for it. Right. Um, and when you start at the end, I think it really influences how you design the learning, how you design and describe what it is you want people to be able to do. Um, so a, a fairly uh, wide ranging answer to your, uh, your rather pithy question. That was, that was the thing that was probably the most important takeaway for me out of all of the credentialing experiments that I was a part of that it re less so was it about um the end result although that was really important it also very much changed the practice internally for the groups that were putting together the learning experiences um in it would there were some new muscles that needed to be flexed and grown and um, new ways of sort of designing backwards from those outcomes. And um, and those were fascinating experiences and, and fun to realize how much, how much changing what to some people feels like, like that person who says, oh, you guys are just the thing at the end. Um. But once you do it and you go through it, you realize that changing one piece in some really essential ways change the whole process and can enrich the process from everybody's, every stakeholder's point of view, whether it's about yeah. designing the experience itself or um, or how things get shared and connected to other experiences that are important or, or. Yeah. And, and Mark, you know, one very tangible example of what you're describing is, you know, um, in the earliest days, I think there was a conflation of the notion of gamification mm -hmm. and badging. I am not uh, at all opposed to gamifying and making learning experiences more fun, but one very notable difference and sort of that shifts the entire mindset is many gamified experiences have a population of like one, right? It's, it's a it's recognition to help you keep going and help you figure out what's next. Um, or if you're in a, a game-based environment and there's a leaderboard, the mm -hmm. assumption is that everyone in that game knows what that means, what that badge, what that trophy, what that score means, because they're playing the game and they know the rules. But when you're talking about making skills useful from context to context, mm -hmm. you can't assume that the population is just you and the people playing your game. You need to assume that there's some third party that's going to meet you, has no clue what it meant to be there. And so they need, when we talk about speaking a common language, it's about introducing that third entity into that story. Who is that third party that wasn't there for the game, that mm -hmm. didn't know the rules, but still could benefit from the skills that you've picked up and that you've demonstrated? And that simple act of saying there's another audience member going from population of two, the, the game maker or the creator and the individual, to a, a third party observer who could be a beneficiary of what mm -hmm. you learn. It changes the way you just simply in what language you use it, 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 it allows you to challenge and question the assumptions around 
you know, what skills really were developed here. And if I'm going to put my name on it as an organization attesting to the fact that this person has a skill, what can I truly stand behind? Can I, is it, am I attesting to that they have some new knowledge? Am I attesting to whether they actually applied that knowledge in, in a certain way? And if so, in what context was it in a real world setting? Was it in a simulated setting? Mm. Was it, um, it through a psychometric psychometrically valid test versus, um, you know, giving a presentation it, it, um, just brings, it forces you to bring more intention to what it is you hope people will learn and, uh, how much validity it will have when it runs free outside of the world that you control. Yeah. The gaming metaphor puts my mind in, in, uh, in that, in that space. And it's, it's interesting because when you, if you, if in your mind you think about digital credentials and games, I actually, I think that there is, there's one way, like you mentioned, that sometimes it's conflated and, and that can be kind of a detriment to moving, moving the ball forward on digital credentials as, a, as an important and serious means of um, moving learning culture. Um, in another respect, if you look at life and career, not to not to get too uh, something lofty, lofty um, as are, are we we were there was a time when um, I helped write a curriculum around game design, and we talked about goals, obstacles, and chance, and that you could apply the goals, obstacles, and chance to any environment and out of it you could help emerge a game and it was like we were teaching game design to young people but um in a lot of ways if you're talking to young people about life and career goals obstacles and chance um is exactly what we're preparing them for right and if you think about credentials as key in their gaming lives um, as they are in this same way, goals, obstacles, and chance in their in their career. It's kind of a power. It's still a powerful metaphor, and and it's um, it, right. You have to be careful not to conflate these two, sort of from a tactical perspective. But um, super interesting. I um, the question I want to ask relates to culture. In that there was a time ten years ago where you sneezed and hit somebody who was like creating badges for their classroom or their program or whatever it was. Then I feel like there was a little bit of a lull and then COVID happened and it seems, and maybe this is just from my perspective, it seems like there is this crazy resurgence of that thing that people knew was important to start to change 10 years ago, but has become relevant in a special way as a result of, of COVID. And I wonder, the question I wanted to ask you is about learning culture, right? You, Credly is, exists uh, um, really across the board from K to 16 and, and professional learning, but it seems like the majority of the sort of sweet spot for Credly has been in professional certification and post-secondary certification. Um, I wonder what you've learned having taken that whole journey um, with me in some ways uh, in, in a different, in a different uh, whatever chariot all these years. Um, I wonder what you've learned about 
everybody's talking again about like we should be investing in digital credentials as an organization um, or as a program or as a um, institution. From your perspective, what needs to be foregrounded in a learning culture in order for digital credentials to be a smart investment at this moment in time, right? So mm-hmm. if if you were going to give advice, like be be my, um, I'm a college, let's say, and you're my Susie Orman and you're going to tell me how to uh, make my investments. Um, like what's the thing you would say, these things need to be front and center until then it's not smart. Okay. Well, if I'm Susie Orman, I should start with girlfriend. <laughs> okay, girlfriend. Um, but beyond that, what advice? So excellent question. I would say, and, and let's let's follow your example. If we're talking to a higher ed institution, because I do think it might be, it's, it's somewhat different, although not entirely, depending on who you're talking to. Your higher ed institution, I think, number one, um, you need to think about um, your success through the lens of what happens to the people who complete your programs, not how many people enroll in them. Uh, It's a big shift, but obviously how successful the people are who complete your programs will be a great indicator of your ability to grow your enrollments. And having credentials on the other end is a great way of proving that the products that you, the products in quotes that you helped, Mm. the learning products that you helped people navigate had value to their lives. So it's it's sort of a self-fulfilling and a, and a closed loop. But number one, caring about the the livelihood improvements that happen to people who go through your programs. Two, do you think about employers in this very disconnected way? Like, you know, do you just take on faith that the people that you train and, and who come through your learning programs are going to get jobs? Or do you have deep uh, and close conversations with, with organizations, with companies in the industries you serve? Mm. Um, we're seeing that some of the most successful higher education partners have pre-existing relationships with employers and employer networks that they're looking to amplify. Those employers are um, either hiring from their learners. They have been the ones that have suggested the programs of study from a regional basis, for example, where they need more talent. Uh, They are, as a result, co-branding those credentials, uh, endorsing them, if you will, with the uh, higher institutions that issue them. Um, it's not an afterthought. It's integral to the design of the program to be looking at labor market data, to be talking to employers, to be um, trying to ensure that the learning experience is relevant and uh, and would produce an individual who could be trusted to do things when they get when they get the job or they return to the job. Because as we know, when you're talking about higher ed, the majority of higher ed learners today are already in the workplace. They are mm-hmm. working adults. Uh, they're not the uh, traditional or, or historical 18 to 22 year old who went right from high school to college. So um, relevance and relationships with employers. Um, and then we know that if you were a higher ed administrator or instructor or any other professional today, you know that it is a very noisy environment. There's no shortage of access to knowledge. The question is, what can you uniquely do to guide somebody into a good life outcome, uh, whatever that might be? And so you have to think about your learning as as a product uh, with a savvy consumer or customer that's deciding between spending time and money with you and spending time or resources with some someone else or some other resource or something that's free or offered on the job. Uh, and so you do need to think about what's differentiated about your offering. Mm. Uh, and uh, credentials are a great way of doing that. Back to our earlier conversation about thinking about that third party that's now part of that relationship. 
um, how will a third party value and uh, treat someone who comes through our program and uh, credentials and how they will represent or be manifested. Working backwards from them is a great way to um, improve the quality of the outcomes of your programs. Yeah, I think that's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Some of them may feel like low-hanging fruit or or obvious, um, but I don't. I don't. I think to a lot of institutions, those things are not yet obvious, and it's great to hear you um, just talk about them a little bit. If I may, one other just quick. Yeah. thought. I, yeah. I said that the story would be a little bit different if we were talking about a different, uh, making this pitch or having this conversation with a different player. When we're having the similar conversation with a, a corporation, um, it, it's it's um, it's a little bit different. And But I think it's telling f- f- to include in this conversation. The question is, are you assuming uh, that your employee, current or future, is going to spend their life with you? Because if you're still in that mindset, uh, you're going to be making decisions which are not in step with what we know is the modern labor market. People, right. you might desire someone to stay with you for 10, 15 yep. years or a lifetime, but that's not going to happen. So the companies that are embracing the fact that they are lucky to have the talent they have while they have it, and the more they invest in those employees, uh, training and learning and pay attention to their professional goals, the more likely they are to stay with you. Mm. Um, and and that in turn, that notion that they might leave and that what's um, is 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 the reality, but the more you invest, the more likely they are to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and 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 I think uh, organizations that recognize they don't own their talent, they're 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 borrowing it um, for a limited period of time. Um, I think are creating learning cultures that say, look, I might be training someone who might go work at a competitor or even change industry someday, but if I'm not investing in them and they're not learning while they're with us, they're much more likely to leave earlier. Uh, And we've seen that time and time again with organizations that study the impact of credentials on their workforce. Uh, IBM, for example, has has, uh, published some of their own efforts on this front and find a direct correlation between the people who do more learning and earn more badges on the job are the ones who are staying at the company Mm. longer, but they're also the ones who are performing better. They've Mm. correlated it with work performance and longevity, and Mm. the indicators point to um, to a higher success, uh, and, and, um, on both, on both fronts. Um, that's excellent. And if I can, I don't know if it's public that IBM report, I will link to it in the show notes. If it's, if it's, I will, I'll available. get you that link. Great. Yep. Um, can we talk a little bit about validation and I'm curious from your perspective, 50 million credentials later plus, um, what are some of the heuristics that you're seeing in how credentials are validated by maybe maybe sticking to ones that are seem relevant across contexts, right? So whether I'm a university credentialing or a you know or I am IBM, what are what are the things you're seeing that seem to be working? I think one way to look at this, uh, to, to, to think about this question is, uh, what are people who earn the credentials doing? Uh, so we recently introduced um, a product called Talent Match, which is helping organizations looking to hire people to do so through a skill-based uh, hiring approach. So essentially, they upload their job description. We extract uh, magically the skills that we think you're looking for, you get a chance to give us a thumbs up, thumbs down if we got it right. 
And then because you're using a common language of skills and we've changed your job description uh, from a set of paragraphs and that often occlude the real top two, three, five things you're, you're truly looking for, we distill that down into to exactly the right skills and capabilities. That's the same language our nearly 3,000 issuing organizations are using to describe the skills that they mm-hmm. assess and observe. And so now we've got both sides in the marketplace speaking the same language, uh, and we can take a job description and then present you with you know the top 15 matches uh, instantaneously, people that you might have to go look needle in a haystack to go find if you even ever could find them at all, because Mm. you just, because we're not, we're switching it from, oh, who worked at this company and has this many years of experience and, you know, went to a college whose sports team I liked or had someone on their team that I dated, like whatever the correlation, Mm -hmm. connection you had, it removes all that and gets right to capabilities. Uh, And then when you layer in preferences about somebody's interest, readiness, desire to work and change and what kind of settings they're looked for, you really wind up with um, the perfect storm, if you will, of of what uh, a very uh, a very hungry labor market for for talent. Mm. They're looking for qualified individuals who are ready to make a move and are actually interested in working in your setting. And that applies to current employees and, and for internal mobility also. So I think when I look at sort of like the shorthand for what's really resonating uh, in 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 the credential space right now, it's can you use the demand side uh, and the data behind it about what positions are open and what skills are in demand and what's trending uh, to inform the learning side uh, to our some of our earlier points, for example, as in higher ed to help inform what kinds of programs would be useful and what kinds of outcomes would be most most relevant uh, uh, for somebody to hold after they completed that program. So labor market relevance with real data that drives demand and knowing that um, those credentials, uh, by using a common language and, and set of skills, you're making it much easier for people to con- connect with opportunities. I, I think those are some key themes. Mm. What's important to me um... I I got this sense. I I get the sense from your answer just now that it's easy to think about. I think it's easy for me to think about validation in a very sort of um, contained sense, or like we can even get wrapped up in like technically what does it look like for things to be like verified, valid. Um, but in this other way, um, this thing isn't valid until it's actually dropped in the pot and mixes with mixes with the the uh, the actual market for it, and then new you know points of validation kind of make them themselves clear in a way um, as the credential is connecting with the world. Does that? Am I saying that? Yeah, back, and right? it is. You you are, and and there is an element of of chicken and. Uh, proverbial mm-hmm. egg here mm-hmm. as well. I, I, um, you know, above all else, I think that what this movement has benefited, or one way this movement has benefited benefited the wider ecosystem, is it has uh, made transparent what it is that goes on uh, in in a given learning or assessment experience. Mm. So there's a there are so many different ways to validate, to train, to assess. It could be done through mentors. It could be done by an employer. You could go to a test center. You could 
take out a number two pencil and do a test um, and project-based work, you name it. And, and we have taken the view that all of those are important. All of them have value, but that value is in the eye of the, of the consumer who's going to put that person skills to use. And so our goal has been transparency and a common data structure. So regardless of whether it was project-based or, 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 uh, proctored exam, um, it's easy to know the difference between two people who came through two different routes, uh, and, and how the development of those skills may have differed. So transparency solves a lot. I I've often thought of it like the coin star machine. Like you can have a giant pile of coins of all different denominations and, um, they're all, they all have value, uh, and depending on, um, you know, and then you dump them all in and, and this is a technology, you know, a data problem that technology can solve, uh, and, and sort out and, why you're sorting them can differ. You know, one day you might want all the nickels together. The other day you might be looking to, you know, mm. put together seven cents and it's not putting all the nickels. You need a nickel and two pennies. So as long as they are properly labeled and you have a way of sorting them and finding them, uh, you can you can get them to add up to what you need to. Mm. We have to go. I feel like I have another at least hours worth of questions. So I hope it's an excuse to do this again sometime soon. But um, I do want to, give you a, a uh, crystal ball moment um, rather than I'm less interested in like, I think people get used to hearing from a CEO of future that uh, plays into the interests of a company. But um, as, as the child of educators, as a new dad, um, what do you see on the horizon? What are the paradigms you think are just are not not going to uh, not going to go away? That are new and interesting and not going to go away? That are going to be really consequential for learners. You know, even before I ever knew I would be a dad, I remember a parent standing up uh, in an audience at a conference where I was on a panel in the very earliest days of Credly, who stood up and said, hey, my kid is approaching college age. All you folks on the panel are talking about alternative pathways and different ways to assemble a learning journey and to find your way in a career. How many of you up there, if you were faced with choosing as to whether you would, you know, your, your child should go to college or pursue an alternative path, would actually trust that an alternative path would produce a good life outcome for your mm -hmm. child? Like how many you're gonna put your money where your mouth is? And I think that, um, I lacked some confidence in answering when it came to making it that real. And when that person stood up, I was like, who am I to mm. stay on my soapbox and tell this person that their kid shouldn't go to college if they had the opportunity to do so? And yet I think the crystal ball says that, um, and I don't think it's really a crystal ball because you can just read the headlines coming in day after day. Degree requirements are dropping quickly not just because the labor market is so tight, because this was starting beforehand, mm. um, but because, I mean, the only reason we ever relied on on degrees, I, not the only reason, a primary reason, was that it was convenient shorthand. And there are so many granular inputs that go into a, a college education, from social uh, socialization uh, outcomes to networks you build to hard work of working while you're going to school. And, um, and yet, we just 
didn't have the technology. It was such an administrative burden to try to capture anything. For, for example, just at a competency-based level, it's just too much work. So you just rely on a grade at the end of the course, and that rolls yeah. up to whether you get a degree or not. But we have technology now that can actually better help record and track um, much more granular level of of inputs. And, and so as a result, I think people... Uh, and there are alternative forms of, of records like product certifications and sm- shorter form programs and certificates where you can see the transparency and, and know what um, what it meant to have gone through it, where it's easier to study the background or understand whether this is a credible, uh, credible source of learning. So I actually think we're a lot closer. Uh, I, I am at the point where I am. I have a very high degree of certain, certainty that by the time my son Denji uh, is confronted with a choice about what he should do when he finishes high school, um, that any path uh, that uh, records, um, uh, you know, that where there's transparency around what he's walking into um, will give him the, um, the, the currency he needs to trade on that for whatever his, his journey will be, that it, that the, that there are truly multi, a multitude of viable options. Uh, and, and, and yes, I, I think we're, 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 before he's in high school, I think we'll be in a world where it's a lot more common for people to have a comfort level about choosing different pathways. And by the way, I'm not saying not choosing college at all. I'm talking about choosing it at the right moment and mm-hmm. for the right program and at the right place. Yeah. Uh, what was your dad's expression? If you, Oh, if you had fun, you won. Yeah. If you had fun, you won. It's tempting to think that in that kind of future for Benji, then, then that becomes a little bit more relevant. If you had fun, you won, right? Like the learner can actually pay more attention to what I want right now. And like, what's, what product is serving up the best experience uh, such that like, maybe, you know, I am coming out of, of all of this as like a super fun gym class where math is also relevant. Um, Jonathan, this, this was so much fun. And I feel like, um, I really want to check in again soon. I am rooting for uh, you always for Credly and its continued growth. And um, I hope we get to talk again really soon. I would love that. And thanks for doing the the podcast series, Mark. It's been terrific. And I'm, I'm honored to have been in the conversation. And I will gladly take you up on a part two anytime you like. Awesome. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.